Hello there. My name is Gareth Long and I'm the Communications Coordinator for the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at ARU. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing some of our students, alumni and academic and technical staff to explore their experiences of education, their career paths and their advice for anyone hoping to work in the same field. In this episode, my guest is professional screenwriter and novelist Toby Venables, who's also a senior lecturer in screenwriting at ARU. We talk about his creative work, including BAFTA-winning Netflix horror film His House, how he was drawn to both horror and history from an early age by the story of Beowulf and Grendel, and the importance of enthusiasm when teaching to bring a subject to life for students. So with no further ado, let's get on with the podcast. Hi, Toby. Hello. Hi, thanks for joining me today. Um, could you start off by telling us, first of all, who you are and what you do at AIU and outside it as well? Um, I'm Toby Venables and I am a screenwriter uh, primarily. And uh, it's through my screenwriting that I came to be um, uh, teaching at, at Anglia Ruskin. Um, but I started out as a, as a journalist and uh, so did a lot of film stuff uh, at the Cambridge Film Festival, did reviews, did interviews. So that's my background uh, in journalism. And that led to uh, actually writing films, um, bizarrely enough. And I'm currently, I've been pitching a load of things in the last couple of years as a result of the success of a a film that I co-wrote called His House, which is on Netflix and won a BAFTA. So um, there's been quite a bit of interest in that, which is nice. And Is that uh, a full length? Film. It is a full length. It's a horror movie. Wow. It's it's got a social kind of theme to it. Um, um, yeah. So, but and also in like uh, just recently started uh, uh, on a permanent contract teaching uh, screenwriting at Anglia Ruskin. So those are, are all the bits kind of joined together. Brilliant. How how did you get into um, well, first of all, film, I guess, and then also what's what's the career path that you took after that um is is there any one thing to begin with that inspired you to get involved with film early on oh gosh i it's always really difficult to sort of boil that down to one thing one thing because my experience with things like this is that there's there's a whole load of things that are that all feed into it and at some point you look back and you realize uh what those things were but sometimes there are moments where all of those things kind of intersect and come together and it's like okay that's the moment of realization that uh, I kind of want to do this um and for me I mean I was always a writer fundamentally whether it was whether it was journalism um scripts and I've written four novels as well um whatever it was it's all kind of the same stuff at the end of the day it's all storytelling mm-hmm. um and I suppose looking back, there was a moment when a teacher at school read out um, the story of Beowulf and Grendel. Not in the original language, I hasten to add, because we wouldn't have known what on earth they were talking about, but a translated version. And it's this incredibly dramatic, gory uh, story, a kind of a horror story, really, with a with a monster 
who who um, Be uh, Beowulf grapples with physically because the monster is is immune to weapons. So he has to throw off armor. Armor's pointless. Weapons are pointless. Swords are no use. You just got to grapple with this thing. And because Beowulf is the strongest man in the world, um, he does it and he just clings on to Grendel's arm until Grendel's arm is rip ripped from its socket. And uh, for some reason, that really stuck in my mind and probably was quite influential in uh, guiding me into, well, either it, it guided me into horror or it was the thing that realised that hor horror was an area that I probably ought to head into because uh, I was both horrified and delighted by that story. So that was one moment anyway. That's funny. I, I distinctly remember the first time I was read uh, Grendel's story at um, secondary school as well by our English teacher. There's something about it, isn't there? It just captures oh, yeah. the imagination, even though it's a very yeah. simple story. It's Yeah, it definitely gets into your head. And it's I remember also, we it, had it's to draw also... a picture as well from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We didn't get to do that. But it also led, I mean, it also fed into my, my interest in history, which... Um, sort of grew and grew because I've uh, th three novels that I've written have all had a historical setting um, three in a sort of Robin Hood kind of period sort of late um, 12th century uh, but one the first one was a Viking setting okay. with zombies <laughs> <laughs> so and there was so there was a lot a lot of Beowulf and Grendel kind of influence and referencing in that and in fact the main character is called Bjolf which is basically the the Norse version of Beowulf. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you make of the film adaptations they've been of Beowulf's story? Well, I just don't feel like there's ever been a really good one. Um, there are there are some that that do good things. I, I'm really not keen on the animated one at all. I really can't. I, I just can't watch that. Um, and it all it all gets a bit. It gets a bit sort of christianized because it's this very pagan story even though mm. uh, like afterwards it's had elements added which sort of just mention god to make it palatable because it's written down by monks so they're trying to make it sound like it's a, a decent christian story when in fact it's this really raw bloody pagan <laughs> monster story um and the zemeckis animation it does sort of make it all about um Hrothgar having made a terrible mistake and it's like he sinned and it and it all comes back to and it's like well it is that's not in the original at all and it's all it's making it a bit like mm, oh dear he sinned so he must be punished and redemption heavy yes yeah yeah Hollywood yeah. plot line there, there, there's actually a very good film of Bell with um Jared Butler in it um which is very very not known at all really very low budget has quite a low budget Grendel which just looks like a sort of tall, tall man with um, a few prosthetics um, but actually the the atmosphere of that is great um, is that an American film or is that Australian or I'm Australian, not sure what I'm not sure where that where that came from actually it might even be um, a Scandinavian film um, but um, okay. well that would explain the atmosphere I guess that they yeah, be able to recreate that. The historical, the feel of the the thing and the historical setting is really is really well done, uh, very simply done, but but well done. 
And then there's 13th Warrior, which is kind of a version of Beowulf, but not, which has all sorts of issues, but I love that film to bits. I can't remember if I've seen that. Who was in that? Um, it's Antonio Banderas playing oh, an yes. Arab, obviously. Yes. I didn't realise the connection with Beowulf. It, it was, was a long time ago a, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Michael Crichton wrote that in a cha- as a challenge because some people said to him, oh, Beowulf's such a boring story, which I don't really understand why anyone would say that anyway. And, and so it's difficult to make it interesting. And he said, well, I think I could do that. And they said, oh, well, I bet you couldn't. And he went away and he, he, you know, he took the bet. He did it. And he told it in this completely new way where it's, it's almost like this is the original thing that happened that eventually became the Beowulf story, which is not at all. It, it doesn't relate. To, you know, that's not the truth at all. But it doesn't really matter. It's just another way of kind of taking those elements and remixing them. And it has but- a great sort of atmosphere. And so the, the some of the details are totally wrong, but the atmosphere is is really great. And um, it and it, they also used a lot, a lot of uh, several Scandinavian actors who are like uh, very well known in Norway, <laughs> but completely unknown um, outside of uh, their native country. Um, and they, yeah, put together this sort of Viking crew, which was quite eclectic and really interesting really interesting but also they made some horrendous mistakes which i won't go into because it's a a very nerdy long list of anachronisms (laughs) i might have to look that one up again i think um so the other books that you've written you say it was robin of sherwood not well whoa whoa there because robin (laughs) sherwood is the the sort of 80s tv series but um it it does involve robin the the three books that I've written, they're actually the main character is Guy Gisborne. Okay. And he's the hero. He is traditionally the villain in the Robin Hood stories. In these books, he is the hero. He's an agent for Prince John. And um, he's not a bad man. And Robin Hood is the villain and is an utter psychopath. <laughs> but people love him. They don't see that. They just see this this amazing figure who they want to follow. And uh, Robin absolutely revels in it. So the main character is Guy, Guy of Gisborne, just trying to get br- bring order to the um, the realm. And um, uh, Hood is this force of kind of utter chaos, really, uh, who is the thorn in his side. So do the other characters, traditional kind of Robin characters, feature in there as well? Many of them. Yeah, they're in there. They, you see them gradually, but and you you see. It, it's sort in a way it's an origin story over over three books i should i should stress you know <laughs> nothing is done straightforwardly but um uh, so it turns it it turns the whole thing on its head but hopefully in a way that is it's not just like it it, it aims to uh, sort of present the story i suppose like 13th warrior in a way that it, this is this is how it could really have happened and that afterwards people start to think of Robin as a hero and Gisborne as a villain. So Gisborne is sort of doomed to be remembered as a villain, but actually he's just tr- trying to do the right thing. And Hood is um, really this, this quite crazy kind of figure. And he does gradually gather his, his uh, yeah, the usual, the usual crew around him, but they might not be quite always how you remember them. I'll say no more. Slightly darker, maybe. 
Oh yes, <laughs> it is a bit Sounds dark. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of that because it's always oh, every adaptation or every, every story I've seen from Robin and Sherwood. I've always thought, well, why do people like the myth of this, of this so much? It's quite a standard good versus evil story. It doesn't have any of the kind of grey areas that I like in fiction. Yeah. You know, oh, this is mostly grey areas. And like lots of people, most of whom are trying to do the right thing, but um, quite often failing. And which is just like, you know, like real life, really. Um, <laughs> some elements of it, I should stress, are not like real life that much. Um, and it has sort of some slightly fantastical elements, though not any. It's not fantasy. It's not there isn't magic. There are, you know, there aren't dragons or anything like that. It's uh, it's set out to create a an authentic medieval world but you know there are some indiana jones kind of moments within it which uh, where things credibility is maybe stretched a little bit but you know that's what how do you, i like to do <laughs> how do you go about researching for a book like that in which most of the history i guess is fictional in itself isn't it um well it, it's a tricky one because i, I mean the the story of Robin Hood, it, Robin Hood is inherently anachronistic. I think this is one thing that people don't quite realise, like this, like mythologising of the longbow and the longbowman, that stuff comes from a later period than it's generally set in, which is this period of when Prince John was, you know, doing devious things because Richard the Lionheart was away. Um, at that point, the longbow wasn't really this iconic thing. Um, and uh, there are elements within that story that just don't really kind of hang together if you if you try to stick them in a historical period. Um, but I did want to stick it in a historical historical period. Um, and so I researched, and I it it felt like it needed to be in that that time as well. And that's an interesting, again, an interesting thing to do to take Prince John and present him as not the villain. Which is much more challenging because he was a terrible man <laughs> in every way so it does take liberties but it again it's like it's trying to present the idea that he's misunderstood and misrepresented and um uh, which to some extent was was the case um but to a large extent wasn't because he was he was truly terrible but um uh so it's trying to just take the reality of the period about which i've read tons of stuff and then find a way in which it might be possible for these characters to actually function in a different way without contradicting any of the stuff that we know about them um so so there's that i mean gisborne it's it's kind of it it's easy really in a way because not a lot is known about him and he's fictional and but there's certain expectations of him and certain things that happen in the stories that we expect to happen and those things do still happen um, but he's a different character and he's, uh, he's almost like a, he's like a, he was initially one of the phrases that we used to describe him was like a 12th century James Bond. That was the idea to the extent that he has a sort of Q figure who gives him, who, who works in the bowels of, you know, the Tower of London, who gives him devices, medieval, you know, genuinely medieval things that would work. There's no record of these things actually existing, but they had to be things that could work using the technology of the times. So he is, 
he is um, uh, issued with various pieces of equipment that help him on his missions. Let's put it like that. Uh, puts me in mind of a um, name of the rose for some reason. I, I can't think why, but the medieval setting and the idea of the, the mastering the technologies at the time, you mm. know, the uh, eyeglass and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't there? That yeah. seemed anachronistic, but clearly wasn't. I don't think because Umberto Eco would do his research. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh like, yeah. 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 So thinking back on your own education. What would you say was the most valuable thing you took away from it? Crikey. Um, I think the thing that I took away, and it, it's it's interesting to me because obviously now I'm teaching, so I'm involved in education. So it, ca it causes you to reflect on that and it causes you to reflect on how you were educated and how people affected you positively and negatively because you're sort of thinking, well, what effect am I having on my students and and am I getting across things in the way that I want them to be got across? And actually, I suppose the one big thing that I take away is um, to do with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm works. <laughs> um, and I, I think looking back at school, particularly um, where teachers especially back then, because going back a, a little way. So teachers back then were a little bit more traditional than, you know, perhaps would expect them to be now. And uh, there were teachers who were incredibly enthusiastic. And everybody responded to that. Every All of us responded to that as kids. Um, it's infectious. And then there were, there were teachers who were clearly just going through the motions and had terrible technique and were just, you know, and to the extent that I actually gave up history because the history the his, it was just like re reciting dates and facts and and it's like oh, th what what is this all what does it all mean you know why are we doing this and there was a point when I, I I was able to choose well we all had to choose history or geography and for some completely incomprehensible reason nothing against geography I mean you know it's great but for some you know I chose geography and I didn't study history and I didn't do a history O level as it was at the time, um, which now that I see, see myself in a, in a room packed with history books, writing historical fiction, I just find absolutely incomprehensible. But it was just that teaching that kind of killed it for me. And what's re reignited it partly for me is um, actually partly lots of people on YouTube talking about nerdy stuff, but, you know, with real enthusiasm. And that is so important. Knowledge, obviously, let's take that as read, also is important. Um, the facts are important, but ultimately what gets it across is that that passion, that enthusiasm. And uh, so even if I'm feeling a bit jaded on any, any particular day, I'm, I'm always thinking I've got to find the thing in this that is really the point of connection, the thing that really makes it, that brings it alive. So that's what I would take away. That's quite a long answer to yeah, <laughs> a good. simple question. That's good. <laughs> that is very important. And I, going back to when you were talking about Beowulf and I was remembering secondary school being taught it myself, I think that's what our teacher had there was that enthusiasm. He was so um, just dedicated to writing, to English literature and to um, 
World War poetry, in fact, in particular, that I actually got into World War poetry, even though I was never a fan of poetry before, particularly. Mm. And it really made me consider different ways of seeing the world, the way he spoke, you know. It didn't hurt either that he was an extreme disciplinarian <laughs> and he had us all scared rigid, I think, throughout his classes. But uh, definitely the enthusiasm was a major factor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what piece of advice would you give your younger self? This is this is always a tricky one because the, the, the temptation is to sort of do a back to the future kind of thing and impart some secret, you know, um that you couldn't have known then but you know to take the, the with the benefit of hindsight you can sort of deliver this this bit of wisdom to your younger self and change things the difficulty that i have is like back to the future if you do that then it it changes everything that happens afterwards so and i'm kind of a bit resistant to that because actually when i think about it i don't really want any of it to have changed even the bad bits, even the sort of failures, I kind of think, well, you know what, those failures, that failure led to that opportunity, which led to that bit of success. So, um, or that failure taught me something which um, I've has stood me in good stead ever since. So um, I think what I would ultimately say, I wouldn't give too much away because it would just ruin the timelines, but uh, no I think- spoilers. I would, yeah, No spoilers, yeah. <laughs> I would just say, just keep going, keep going. It will, it will work. <laughs> you know, keep the faith. I think is, is the mm. message. It will all be fine in the end. And if it isn't fine, it isn't the end. Ah, uh, I like that. <laughs> as Komodo Mayo would say. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so let's think about Cambridge for a bit. Okay, this is where our students come to study what what is a you could tell them about cambridge that other people might not readily know oh this this is an interesting one because i mean i've lived and worked in cambridge for um a long long time and um thinking about this because cambridge is such a weird place <laughs> a weird and quirky place with a very weird and quirky history and lots of people have come to cambridge from all over the place and brought all sorts of um ideas and um, so many things have been developed in Cambridge I think what I would say though is kind of nothing to do with any of that at all um uh it's to do with ghosts actually so you know I write horror stuff so I have an interest in ghosts and actually there's there's a story that I wove into the first screenplay that I ever wrote which was never made and probably never will be but um still is you know, it's kind of holds a special play, place in my heart because it was the first full length um, horror movie script that I wrote. Um, and this particular story was to do with Peterhouse College, where there have been quite significant hauntings, apparently. People have claimed to have seen figures and dark shapes and to have felt feelings of dread. And there have been all sorts of things over the years. And Peterhouse, of course, is one of the, well, is the oldest college. And some parts of the, the college are, I think, 13th century. So like seriously old. Um, and also there's, back in its history, there was, a, I think, a, a bursar who hanged himself somewhere. You know, everyone, everywhere, everywhere has something like this at some point, if you go far enough back. 
Um, so people think, oh, well, clearly this dispersor is haunting this this whole establishment. Um, but the one that really got me was this uh, a tale of a, a, just a black shape, not 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 even like, you know, a figure, but a black shape moving around on top of this, this sort of parapet over the entrance way, looking down into the courtyard. And um, and this this near people who lived in rooms near where this was having feelings of 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 dread and just like it sort of literally kind of was sapping their energy and their their will to live kind of thing um and that thing whatever that was that in my mind that that really stuck so um but the other thing about that and uh this is the interesting fact which i'll just leave for people to, to sort of think about is that Apparently, on about three occasions, I think, um, exorcists have been called in to deal with these things at various at various points. And you think, OK, fine, um, they're taking it seriously. They're, they're just or they're hedging their bets and covering all the all the, all the bases. But, you know, get the exorcist in just in case. Um, but the thing about an about exorcism, and I think this is something that maybe most people wouldn't necessarily realize is that ex exorcisms aren't for getting rid of ghosts usually exorcisms are specifically for casting out demons so and i'll just leave that <laughs> for people to, to think about demons. so do you think they believe they were demons rather than I ghosts or do you no just idea. think they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> no idea and obviously i've i've kind of fictionalized this to some extent and woven it into a story so i may have started to imagine elements to it myself so um please do also take that into account but you know that that's what i do so uh, <laughs> but um yeah. how recently was it that they had exorcists in there uh there was oh gosh i don't know uh, there was a there was a relative. I think in the nineties there was there oh, really? was. Uh, I think there it was. I don't know if it ever happened, but it was suggested that they hold a mass um, in order to, um, you know, get rid of these bad things. And whether it happened or not, I don't know. But it was in the news. It was in the news in the nineties. I I seem to remember, but uh, my memory could be faulty on this. And you know, I'm sure there'll be people who correct me on that one. That is very recently. Oh, yeah, it's quite recent. Yeah. yeah. Well, from my point of view, it feels recent. <laughs> Maybe some of our listeners would disagree with that. But thinking about the horror aspect of things, what would you say is your favourite horror story? And it could be a film or a book or anything. Um, really. It's a big question. Other I mean, than it's, it's, it's such a simple question, but it's also a very, very complicated question. Um, I think, I mean, in some ways, I would probably always go back to um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, just because it's such an extraordinary piece of work. And I mean, actually, although it's got horror elements, um, for me, it's kind of, it's like the, the, the birth of science fiction, that novel. And it's 1818, it's like very early, um, but that within that novel, even though it go, you know, there's a lot of ho horror stuff that happens, and obviously the you know Frankenstein films are regarded as horror films and so forth. Within 
the novel, there's a whole process that Victor Frankenstein goes through where he thinks he can do this thing and he starts looking at the writings of alchemists and mystics and all that stuff. And then he goes to university. So it's a good university um, text as well. Um, he goes to university and his, his lecturers say, forget all that. <laughs> Throw all that away. Science, science. And um, and this but this was kind of at the time before science really was science. But that and then he, he does throw all that away and he applies himself to scientific methods and he achieves what he sets out to do using science, not magic. So it's not like Faust, where there's a pact with the devil or, you know, spells or incantations or anything like that. It's like totally his achievement through the application of science. So it's absolutely a science fiction story and which is one of the things I love about it, that it's kind of the first to 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 have that and that it has this within it, within the structure of the story, this working through of old superstitious stuff, rejecting it and applying science instead. Um, so, yeah, and it's and it's dreamt up by a, a teenage girl in in the early 19th century and it's and that in itself is extraordinary be because it reads as such a mature kind of vision mm. really it's it's really hard it's it's one of those incredible pieces of work where someone i don't know it's almost like they're visited by by a muse uh, in that moment and just just create this amazing piece of work um and yeah, but uh, absolute work of genius. I read it for the first time about, oh, I think it's about 2014, so it's part of the MA course, creative writing course. And I was shocked just how many things there were I didn't expect to be in there. And you know, we get mm. so used to the iterations of Frankenstein on film, yeah, know, or yeah. cartoons or whatever, you know, that we're brought <laughs> up with. And it's such a different vision that she has in that book to mm. anything that's been put on film I felt and I felt so much sympathy for the creature itself mm. you know that's what really struck me I think is just how neglected he was by his creator you mm. know and, and abandoned and yeah and how he was righteous in many ways you know felt yeah. his vengeance yeah. was absolutely righteous and the, the initial image of at the beginning of the um, sleigh on the snow and being and the form chasing after him, it completely turned that around for me at the end. I was just like, yeah, this this is warranted, you know? Yes. <laughs> he yeah. And that this. abandonment, it, it, because the, what the films do, well, what, what the Boris Karloff one, what the 1933 <laughs> Boris Karloff one did was, it's like, it's a botched job, really. Um, and there's, you know, uh, the the hunchback assistant gets the wrong brain and it's it's a criminal brain it's it's like he's kind of doomed from the start so it's like terrible terrible science it's science gone wrong mad scientist and it's kind of been that ever since like this crazed person doing crazy things and messing it all up and meddling with things that he shouldn't meddle with and being punished really um and there is an element of like meddling in things that perhaps are you know you you, you shouldn't but that's not really the point in the novel. And novel is he completely achieves what he sets out to do. A hundred percent, you know, he does it. Neglects it. But then <laughs> he, just, he, 
he he suddenly realizes what he's done and just runs away. Mm. He literally just you know runs out of the room, and then he comes back later and the the, the creature's gone and he thinks, phew, oh well, and carries on with his life. <laughs> Meanwhile, the creature's wandered off, and it's about that abandonment and the total lack of responsibility. So there's all stuff about parenthood and uh, you know responsibility in science, responsibility in the, of with anything really um so he, he frankenstein doesn't fail as a scientist but he does fail as a human mm. he fails to take responsibility for what he's done um and again for somebody that age how old was she when she wrote it was it 18 yeah when she started it she was she was a teenager to yeah. recognize that at that age those issues those themes that's incredible yeah yeah absolutely and it, it has that it has that real kind of depth it has tremendous depth and it's it's one of those those novels one of those stories that's become increasingly relevant as well where it feels like it's sort of even though it's written in 1818 it feels like it's the novel of the 20th century because it what it's describing is so becomes so significant for oh, the development of nuclear weapons and um genetic experimentation all sorts of things that were not really possible at all in the 19th century certainly not in the early 19th century so it increases in its in its relevance mm, the idea that we can just rush into these things to see what happens rather than having a, mm. a plan for it afterwards yeah yes yeah, yeah horrific in that sense it is a true horror story i guess you know the horror of humans again which it so often is isn't it in horror stories it's usually a metaphor for the horror of humans the the spirit or the you know the, the creature if you like yeah and actually is. in like Stephen King sort of bring it sort of slightly more up to date um <laughs> who I also love by the way and like w would have been one of the other ones that I would have mentioned actually I just did so it's fine <laughs> um um that in his stories always the 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 worst horror is the humans and it's like okay there might be some weird cosmic thing going on but actually ultimately the thing that really gets to you when you're reading it is how it affects people and how it affects the way people treat each other mm. and like thinking about the film the mist absolutely kind of which absolutely destroys you by the end and it's all about well, i can't watch the end oh. i have to stop and then put the extra deleted scene on instead <laughs> <laughs> because it could all be happy then <laughs> yeah but it's like it's like okay there are monsters outside outside they're all trapped in a in a in a supermarket there are monsters outside in the mist but really the monsters they're just they're just creatures doing what those creatures do mm. horrific though it may be <laughs> and they yes they will eat you but they're just doing what creatures do but inside the supermarket the way the humans start to divide and turn on each other that's the really disturbing bit mm. you know that, that these people aren't all pulling together and you know working to get themselves out of this this situation that they're just they're turning on each other in in horrific ways so yeah so that's i think in a way that's always the 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 real theme of horror so i'm thinking about monsters now the um gareth edwards film that's put me in mind of and in some fantastic. ways yeah when you think about it it's a great film but it's basically 
putting it out there in black and white, what all other horror movies do anyway, in that it's the humans that are the problem, yes, yeah. not the monsters. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> as if yeah, it needs to be absolutely. underlined. As much as I love it, it's it's still, yeah, in a way, it's a message that doesn't need to be said. It, it destroys the metaphor, in a way, I guess. What projects are you currently working on, both at AIU and outside? Um, well, at AIU, I've just... Um, I've been teaching at ARU for a, quite a long time as an associate lecturer. Um, so in a way, things haven't changed very much. I mean, um, I've, I've, I'm now on a permanent contract, so it's sort of it's slightly different. Behind the scenes, it's different. As far as students are concerned, they're probably not noticing a huge difference. Um, at least I hope they're not. But um, so I'm carrying on teaching um, the various modules that I teach, one of which is film journalism. So there's a sort of journalistic thing there um, and a, a couple of screenwriting modules that um, uh, I, I teach on. And um, but also putting together a new course, um, which hopefully <laughs> will launch in September, um, which is to do with um, TV production. And um, th there are elements of that that are uh, tied into the, the writing part and so lots of people are having input into it um, but there are, there are modules within that that um, need to be sort of put together and so on so that's one of the things that I'm actually doing now which is really nice to do to be able to sort of think uh, sort of strategically I suppose about how best the screenwriting fits with all these other uh, disciplines um, all of which together make film or TV production um, because one of the things that I'm I sort of I'm pushing to do is to um, make it really relevant to the industry actually because lots of people can teach you how to write a screenplay lots of books can do that you can find that out on YouTube but the question is what then what do you do with it and um, where do you take it so um, always I want I've sort of wanted to have that element within the modules and uh, you know particularly the screenwriting modules that, that I teach that there is this kind of connection with the industry and that people come away from it understanding why scripts are the way they are for one thing but also having a, some idea what to actually do with them and how things work and how sometimes they don't work which is just as just as important mm -hmm. so there are those there are those things happening and um, also I'm writing scripts like this week I've started on um, adapting a, a 1970s British horror novel, which I can't name. But anyway, it's a 1970s British horror novel um, uh, as a film. Is so, it one people would have heard of? Then it's probably not. not no, probably okay. not. No, don't don't don't. Try. I'm just going to keep delving. <laughs> <laughs> I don't because I'll end up saying it and that, that would be. That'd be terrible, but um, uh, but it is going to be set in the seventies as well, so it's got that kind of feel to it, which um, is going to be great. I'm co-writing that with uh, sort of uh, writing partner Felicity Evans, and um, it, we work together on um, his house. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing. Uh, we've written a couple a couple of thrillers together as well, sort of straight for, straight to TV um, thrillers. Which has been a fantastic discipline, actually, to to go through that process. Where it's quite rapid. Um, like they just want uh, fairly low budget, 
straightforward but compelling thrillers for TV. Boom. And um, to actually go through that process and make it hit all its marks and be interesting and, you know, to fulfill a brief, but for it to be more than just a brief, that's a great challenge and a great discipline, actually, and a, and a really interesting sort of learning curve. Um, so those have been picked up? Yes, yeah, yeah they were, those were commissioned. So they're, they're like one of them, um, actually, we're now on the fourth, just started on the fourth one. The first two have been made. The third one right. is about to be made. Um, uh, and but, but the fourth is like literally the, the ink is still wet on the treatment. So um, we'll see how that goes. But uh, none of none of them are completed yet. So okay. um, so it's all um, in post production. We, actually, one is a romance. The first one was a romance. Oh, right. sort of like Hallmark, you know. Wow. <laughs> um, which is a very interesting set of challenges because it's so specific, so specific. So to find the, the creative things that you can do within this very, very sort of prescriptive structure mm. is is quite a challenge, but you know, a good one, a good one. It's good is to be challenged. Is that the first time you've written a romance? It certainly is. It certainly is. And uh, it's under a pseudonym because it, it was like so off-brand, <laughs> <laughs> completely off-brand. It just would confuse people, but um, it was really, really interesting to do. Really interesting to do. So, will you do another one? Do you think? I don't know. I don't <laughs> mind. Wouldn't mind. Um, there's no horror in the romance at all. I, I take no. It. There were so many places where I just thought, oh, this would work <laughs> really well if it. Where it's almost like, um, and actually, actually, because mischievously, there, there's a bit where someone arrives and they this 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 farm has some cabins and um that this person is going to stay in they're staying on this farm and it's all part of you know you're picturing the sort of romance it's a lemon farm in <laughs> california so you know it's lovely lemon trees sunny and these cabins and um and at that point i just thought i've got to do this so i i put a quote from uh, psycho in there which was so she says, can I take any one of these cabins? And he says, yep, six cabins, six vacancies, which is a line straight out of Psycho because I just couldn't resist. But it, it doesn't disrupt anything. I, you know, I resisted all the other urges to to um, reference horror movies in, a, in an inappropriate fashion. And do you carry on working on your novels as well? Are you writing any more of those? Um, I would like to write more novels. It's it's just that in the last few years, everything's sort of because the screenwriting has taken off. Um, I just haven't had the the chance. I, I was going to say I was going to say I haven't missed it that much, but there have been times actually when I've sort of thought, oh, do you know what? It'd be really nice just to sit and write an, a novel where there are no there are no expectations, there are no producers, there's no you know there's no time limit. There's, the first act doesn't have to end exactly there <laughs> because screenwriting is, is so so sort of um, tightly structured for good reason and that's one of the attractions about it um, but when you're writing a novel you're just on your own you're just it's like that's the whole process <laughs> you sit down you write it you finish it you're finished that's it no one's going to make it they might publish it hopefully but um 
and you know and you get an editor involved and that you know it makes a few maybe they maybe make a few changes but um beyond that it's just it's just you and the page and there's there is something quite n nice about that you've not done any collaborative novels or anything like that not novels no I, i'm not even sure how no collaborating on screenplays how that would happen but. no no but i mean collaborating on screenplays works works really well and done and most most of uh, like myself and Felicity Evans, we've sort of collaborated on n nearly everything that I've mentioned um, so far. Um, but on a novel, it's, I don't know. I know people do. I'm just not quite sure how I would. I immediately think of the Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett ones. And, you know, who's doing what on it? You know, is it set roles that they have? Or do they just sit together coming up with ideas and then one of them writes or, yeah. Oh, wrote, I should say. Uh, yeah. Now that Pratchett's passed. It's a tricky yeah, one. It's, it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've written a few myself, and I can't imagine how getting somebody else involved in it would actually make the process easier, apart from coming up with ideas, you know, and, and making yeah, editing yeah. and things like that. And it's, yeah. If someone I, who's involved in the plotting of it, and then someone uh, writes it, because hmm. the, the thing with a novel is, like, the 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 qualities of the writing are so specific and the sort of texture of the the prose is so specific that to just have have it switch from this person to that person without it without that person having to sort of imitate that person and I'm, I'm, I don't know mm. I don't know how that would work but it was very sort of if it's more like a production line where pe people are working on <laughs> sort of takes the takes the shine of it slightly but um if, if people were working on the plot and the characters but then one person went and wrote the, the finished thing that i could see that i could see they'll probably end up being arguments over who did it <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us um thank today. you and uh it's great to meet you lovely to talk to you thank you